0: Hello, my name is Beth Shaw and I attend the 6 p.m. service. The Bible reading is from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 5 to 16. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city, that noise from the temple? It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. Before she goes into labour, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labour than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord."
1: G'day everyone, I'm Ken and today we are finishing our series in the book of Isaiah. Now it's very obvious we haven't gone anywhere even close to looking at every detail and yet hopefully you have been encouraged to read even more of this amazing book. Nine weeks ago we began back in chapter 40 with the very first words of verse 1, comfort comfort my people. It was suggested that this point in the book marked the change in tone. Up until then, the book is primarily pointing out sin, declaring the judgment that is coming on Israel and all the earth. But chapter 40 verse 1 marked a positive turn to good promises of things to come after the judgment. Over the last couple of months, we have seen that there have been many good promises made. God says that he will rescue, that he will restore, that he will make things even better than they were before. But all of these promises of good have been combined together with stern warnings. Don't fall into idolatry. Don't trust in yourself. I don't know about you, but the frequent rebukes, particularly of idolatry, have made me wonder if seeing chapter 40 onwards as positive has been too quick to see only one side of the story. To finish our series, we're going to look at a part of the last chapter, chapter 66, verses 5 to 16. Isaiah's bringing all that he has said to a close. And so he clarifies how he's been speaking both comfort and judgment the whole time. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word. Lord God, we thank you. Holy One of Israel, that you are a God who reveals yourself, who speaks so that we don't have to guess, so that we don't have to make assumptions about what you want from us, what you've provided for us. We thank you that you've revealed your word, that we have the book of Isaiah in a language that we can understand, that we can study, that we can work through together to try and understand what you're saying to us. Lord, we come before you now because we're desperate for you to work in us, to to allow us to understand what you're saying to us in your word and that you would work in us by your spirit so that we would be doers of your word. We pray that that would be the case for each one of us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know that I used to work as a physiotherapist. A highlight of that time was helping clients who came to see me with a sore neck People often came into my practice looking like this, holding their neck, wincing in pain. I asked them some questions about how it had started, then asked them to turn it, look over their left shoulder. Now turn and look to the right. Tip your head to this side, now to that. Now, if you've ever had bad neck pain, you know that even the slightest movement causes intense pain. And so the natural response is to avoid moving at any cost. I quickly learned to read people's expressions, which often quite plainly said, why is this clown telling me to do the very thing that results in my pain? Now, if assessing the problem was already off to a bad start, when treatment began, things got even worse. At some point, the person in pain was asked to lay down on their back on the table. I cradled their head in my hands, massaging their neck, prodding joints, twisting their head this way then that often visibly tense, they were still trying to protect themselves from the pain. Relax, I said. Trust me. But trust is not easy when your neck hurts. Often their response was to do exactly the opposite, to tense up even more. My guess is that many were thinking, if I relax, he'll get his opportunity to twist my head right around and it's going to be agony and so they would tense up so that I couldn't hurt them. It did mean less pain in the short term, but it resulted in a much longer time of suffering. The problem from my perspective was that so long as they tried to protect themselves, the source of their pain couldn't be treated. Those I convinced to trust me responded so much more quickly to treatment. There was some immediate pain involved for them, but the short term increase in pain led to long term freedom from pain. And I think that in a similar way, the whole book of Isaiah is God dealing with Israel's underlying problem. God exposes the true cause of their problem and offers to fix it. But the process of fixing it isn't going to be pain free. Israel has to stop trying to prevent the pain and instead trust God. Doing so will involve short-term pain, but the long-term gains are out of this world. That's why we call this series, In God We Trust. It's a statement, something that of course we all do. We trust in God. But it was intentionally turned into a question. The probing question being, do we really trust in God? Not just in some things, but in everything and at all times. Because in practice, like my physio clients, too many times we try to manage things on our own, doing the very opposite of what will fix our problem. We ignore the one who can help us and insist that we know better. A lack of complete trust in God is the issue that Israel has been repeatedly confronted with by Isaiah. And when we get to the final chapter, perhaps surprisingly, it still remains the question, do we trust in God? Isaiah approaches this question one last time by looking at what our response to God's word reveals in verses 5 and 6. In verses seven to 13, he repeats God's word regarding Jerusalem. And he finishes in verses 14 to 16 by showing the outcome of our response to God's word. So if you have your Bibles there, keep them open in chapter 66 and let's look at what God is saying to us. Verse five identifies two opposite responses to God's word. There are those who tremble at God's word And those who do not. Those who tremble clearly make the right response. They do what we're supposed to do. Just prior to the passage we read, verse 2 says, These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. God desires his people to recognise his word and respond to it rightly by trembling. Which sounds strange to us because what have God's people got to fear from God? Surely trembling is a sign of thinking that something bad is going to happen to us. When the school bully said, I'm going to get you for that, it made us tremble. But when someone who we don't think can do anything to us makes the same claim, we just laugh it off. That's why our response to God's word reveals what we think about him. Those who tremble understand rightly who has spoken. While it is right to see God's words as words of comfort, His words are also weighty. God's words are not the thoughts of someone who can be safely ignored. They're not empty promises. They're not suggestions that we can take up if we so choose. We need to hear God's word and do exactly what it says. When God says jump, we should ask, how high? But verse 5 becomes even more confusing because those who don't tremble at God's word don't simply ignore his word. The opposition, those brothers who hate you, verse 5 calls them, on the outside, look to be saying all the right things. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, they say. Those are the kind of words that we might put in an email or write in a card to encourage a Christian friend facing a difficult situation. From their words, it looks like they revere God. But in verse 3, God exposes their actions and clarifies what lies just below the surface. Verse 3. But whoever offers, uh, so whoever sacrifices a bull, is like one who kills a person. And whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and they delight in their abominations. See, on the outside, it might look like they are keeping God's word by offering sacrifices and burning incense, But God sees through their religious actions and their nice-sounding words, and he knows that their heart is not in it. They're not doing what God wants, but what they think is best. Clearly, it is not the performance alone that counts, but the motive that accompanies our actions. Going through the motions doesn't impress God. And so the enemies of God, verse 6, are, are not the bad guys out there seeking to destroy those in the promised land. It's the ones in the promised land who pretend to be on God's side. Underneath the impressive show, they, they refuse to truly listen to God's word, to tremble at it. And as a result, God will punish them. A punishment that's carried out at the temple, verse 6 it's likely that the judgment of God at the temple refers to its physical destruction by Babylon. The place where God's word was to be spoken the clearest becomes a place of noise and uproar. The terrifying noise of a a military battle, of people crying out in pain as they died, of a grand building being knocked down. But importantly, it's not just any building. As the 9-11 attacks in America targeted buildings that were symbols of power, representations of a particular worldview, so the destruction of the temple was symbolic. To destroy the temple was to strike at the centre of what was most important to Israel. Everyone assumed it symbolised that God was no longer king. But what it really meant was that God as king Was punishing those who pretended to listen to him, but in practice ignored his word. And the implication for us has to be that God is still not fooled by our show. If we think that we can live however we want through the week and then act good on Sundays, it may fool others, but God sees straight through it. We may have all the answers to tricky theological problems, we might know all about God and his word, but God is not impressed by our knowledge. People that tremble at God's word have hearts and actions that line up. Our response to God's word reveals where our hearts are really at, who we believe God really is. And in verses 7 to 13, Isaiah goes on to repeat God's word regarding Jerusalem. We need to understand here that Jerusalem and Zion are a summary of God's message. They are real places, but again they symbolize so much more which is why there is such contrasting responses to what God says about Jerusalem in verse 7 <laughs> in verse 7 in verse 7 Isaiah introduces a picture the meaning of which may not be immediately obvious in the background is the terrible consequences of the exile too often we can hear the word exile and think Temporary removal from the promised land. We downplay it because we know the outcome. We may think must have been a bit of a nuisance, but it was only 70 years in the end. The reality is that Israel faced extinction. So severe was the military action against them that there was a very realistic fear that within a generation, not a single Israelite would be left. Like the Tasmanian tiger, they would be gone forever. But contrasted with that terrifying thought is the promise of God that Jerusalem will be a city like a nursing mother, a mum who has plenty of milk to feed her baby, verse 11. The very thing that they were lacking, the next generation, is what God uses to capture in picture form what he is promising to the exiles. Verse 8, a country born in a day, a a nation brought forth in a moment. That's pretty rapid population growth. And unlike the experience of any mum listening to this, it's pain-free. Delivery takes place, verse seven, before the labor pains even begin. Jasmine, my youngest daughter, was by far the quickest of Christie's deliveries, from her, her waters breaking to Jasmine's birth, a matter of hours. But what God promises here is every mum's dream. So unbelievable is it that even the promise is expressed in the doubt that was the common reaction, verse 8. Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? It's the logical response, isn't it? We all know that Rome wasn't built in a day. And that principle is not just limited to cities. It's our experience, whether it's study or sport or music or relationships. If you want something good, it takes time to get it. Which gave Israel two reasons to not trust God. Firstly, God had let their beautiful city be destroyed. What they had taken centuries to establish got allowed to be wiped out almost overnight. And secondly, God is promising a miracle as the fix for their situation. A city so devastated that people thought it would never be rebuilt will now reappear. Not slowly built back up over time. God speaks and Jerusalem is non-existent one second and then complete the next. Now, where have we heard that before in the Old Testament? God speaks everything into being in the beginning. And now he tells the exiles that he is going to do it again. He is going to speak into existence a new heavens and a new earth. Only this time, it's going to be even better than the first one was. The nature of their experience and and the promises that God makes is why there were two reactions to God's word from the exiles. Some felt the pain of exile and turned away from God. His actions had caused enough pain already. So in response, from here on in, they would protect themselves and, and fix things for themselves. The fairy tale he promised was just too much to believe. Others accepted that the pain of exile was a necessary consequence for their disobedience. And yet even still, they needed to believe the miraculous promise that God was making to them. That though logically it defied belief, because it was God who spoke it, they would trust him. Again, it's not too hard to make parallels to our own situations. Many of us have experienced disappointment and pain. We've trusted God in the past, and things have not worked out the way that we think they should have. The pain can make us question if God really cares, if he has our best interests at heart. When he then promises that there's going to be a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven with no more pain or crying, it will go on forever. It sounds so much like a dream that we wonder if it's even possible. Are the mockers that say it's all just pie in the sky right after all? Maybe for you, the harder thing to accept is the things that God expects of you right now. He says, Trust me with your finances, with your family, with your future. Trust me to provide, to sustain, to bless. And when those things don't immediately appear, We wonder if he'll ever come good on his promises, and and so we start to do ourselves what's needed to make sure we will get them in the end. It's very easy to point the finger at Israel and condemn their lack of trust in God. And yet, the fact that these promises have only been partially fulfilled should tell us that we are in the same situation as Israel was in exile. God's word has been spoken and he's waiting to see how we will respond. The final verses we're going to look at describes the outcome of our response to God's word. In Isaiah 66, God doesn't give any further proof for why he can be trusted. He just declares again what will be. This has been his consistent argument since chapter 40. He alone can declare the future. And notice the three times spoken word of comfort. The exact same word is used that was used back in chapter 40, verse 1. Verse 13, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. God repeats his promise to comfort them. And there are two outcomes. The first is in verse 14. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants. Those who take God at his word, who trust him, will receive every good thing that he has promised. Rather than barren deserts, we are lawns in springtime, growing and expanding, fruitful beyond imagination. But the second response is found from the end of verse 14 through to the end of verse 16. But his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people. And many will be those slain by the Lord. This is a sobering end to a book offering comfort. In declaring what will be, God says that some will take him at his word, but his foes will not. They will reject his word. They will refuse to tremble. They will doubt and mock and come up with alternate ways out of the mess. Rather than trusting him and relying on his miraculous provision, they will seek to provide for themselves. And the result will be their destruction. When people came to see me with a sore neck, their trust in me or lack of it might impact how long they had to put up with their pain. They might ignore me or go get a second opinion, get some medication or go and see the chiropractor instead. We live in a world that presumes there is always another option. But God declares here in Isaiah 66 that how we respond to God's word determines our final outcome. This is not one contributing factor, one part of the whole. If we listen to God's word, if we tremble at it, All the good promises we've heard are ours. But Isaiah 66 closes with a terrifying truth. Many will be those slain by the Lord. And the message of Isaiah is the message of the gospel. Jesus died in our place to take our punishment and give us all his blessings. It is great news if we will trust God. But many see the message of the gospel as the ultimate example of being out of touch with reality. To suggest that God is coming to judge is considered to be the very definition of being crazy. But God declares at the end of Isaiah, and again at the end of the Bible, that he is coming soon. Revelation chapter two, uh, 22, verse 12 says, Look, I am coming. Soon my reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Are we those who tremble at his word or will we be those condemned for ignoring it? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you are a holy God and a gracious God that you're a loving God that declares to us promises that we can be with you, that you've provided, you've done everything that's necessary for us to be back in right relationship with you. You've cleansed us from our sin if we trust in Jesus and his death in our place. And yet at the same time, you are a holy God who is just. And if we choose to continue rejecting that offer of salvation, then we'll have to pay the consequences for our own sin. This is an incredibly hard message for people to hear. It's not just a comfort, it's also a challenge. And so I pray, Lord, that you would speak really strongly to each one of us, enable us to understand your message, respond to it by receiving it, and that we as your people would take this message to people who as yet don't trust in you. We pray this with great thankfulness in the name of Jesus. Amen.